The scripture reading today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 15 to 22. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. This is the word of the Lord. morning once again. My name is Pastor Jeffrey and I'll be delivering God's word to you. Let us pray. Father, we come to your holy word in great expectation and hope that your words will affect and change us. Lord, your words powered by the Holy Spirit will transform our hearts and we'll be able to see you more clearly. This is our hope, this is our desire, and this is what we long for during this time. As we continue to worship you, please be in the midst of us and may we be able to see and hear your words. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been with us for these two weeks, we've been going over um, things about, it's not really a vision series, but it's just more about how our church wants to set the agenda for the upcoming year. So we're doing two sermons. David talked about how we are one body. And today I'll be talking about church discipline. Now, church discipline is not a common topic in most churches, including ours, because it seems harsh and unnecessary. Church discipline is not something that pumps the church up. It is not something that gets everyone excited. So we don't talk about it, but I think we are doing ourselves a disservice by not talking about church discipline. And we hope to correct this in the years to come, as we do want to talk about church discipline. Now, why? Before I talk about why, some of you are sitting there thinking, what in the world is church discipline? That sounds horrendous. Church discipline? Those two words don't seem to go together. Well, church discipline, according to the scriptures, is simply the process of restoring a brother and sister in the faith to repent of their sins and restore them back to spiritual health. That's all church discipline is. Now, that doesn't sound too bad, but people who have been in the church and have heard or experienced church discipline know that that's not how it always seems. Oftentimes, church discipline is only associated with the word excommunication. Now, for, for most of you, you're saying, what is excommunication? Well, excommunication is a formal process of removing a Christian from the faith. Right, let me say that again. Excommunication is the process of removing a Christian from the faith. 
And I know as Christians hear that, as well as non-Christians, they say, whoa, why would you do that? That seems so unnecessary, so overboard. Well, before I go on and explain why I think it's in the Bible, we first need to understand, before we talk about church discipline, we need to understand the goals of the church. And I think this is one fault that the church experienced when they talk about church discipline. They don't talk about the goals. The goals are important because once we understand the goals, then the discipline makes sense. For runners, their goal is to run long and fast. That's the goals of the marathon. So what will they do? They will discipline themselves from not eating sweets or other junk foods. Uh, if you go in to a running group, you see that they talk about all sorts of weird stuff like how beneficial kale is for you or how carrots are good for you. I don't know. It's not a good conversation most of the time. And they talk about running 60 to 70 miles a week. And to a person who has no plans on running a marathon, they sound insane. Now, what if a runner went to a sumo wrestler meeting and they said, hey, here are the disciplines you need to follow. You need to eat kale, lose about 10 to 15 pounds, and run 70 miles a week. They'd be like, what are you talking about? That's insane. Because our goal is not the same as your goals. Why do I mention that? When non-Christians hear about church discipline, they should be appalled by it. They should be appalled by it because they do not share the same goals as the church. So if they are appalled by it, we should not be like, oh, no, no, it's really a good thing. We need to talk about why it's in place. We need to first talk about the goals of the church. So when we talk about church discipline, we must first talk about the goals of the church. So what are the goals of the church? Well, if you look at Matthew chapter 28, I think that's a good summary of where we can find the goals of every church, not just ACC. It's not a vision statement of any sorts. It's just the general goal that Christ gives to his church. And what is that goal? After Christ has resurrected from the dead, his last words to the disciples were what? Go make disciples. That is the goal of every church. It is to make disciples. And what are disciples? People who love Jesus and want to follow him for the rest of their lives. And how are disciples made? It is when the church sends people. It's when the church baptizes people. It is when the church teaches them. When all these things, three things occur, a disciple is formed and made for life. So the goal of every Christian church is to make disciples. Now, interesting fact. The goal of a church is not to create missionaries. I said it. The goal of the church is not to create missionaries, nor is the goal of every church to baptize or convert. That's not the goal. Nor is it to always teach the right doctrine. Those are simply three methods of achieving the ultimate goal of creating lifelong disciples. 
We send out missionaries in hopes that we baptize unbelievers in hopes that they come under the teaching of the word so that they follow Jesus for the rest of their lives. That is the goal of the church. Now here's the second question we need to ask. What is the goal of the disciple then? That is a question that is not often asked. And it's an important question because the goal of the church is not always necessarily the same as the goal of the disciple. See, the goal of the church is to create disciples, but the goal of the disciple is not necessarily to create more disciples. It is to pursue the peace and purity of the church. When you become a follower of Jesus, your first concern and objective becomes the church of Jesus Christ. Now, today in American Christianity, that is anathema. You don't say that. The goal of the Christian life is to have your best life with God now. Just you and God. That's it. And if anyone tries to hinder your walk with just you and God, then you need to cut them out from your life. But that's not Christianity. Global Christianity has always put the church first. The disciples have put the church first. Because Christ's true bride is the church, not just single individuals. Now, that does not mean individual Christianity is not important. It's absolutely important. Your personal relationship with Christ is very important. All I'm saying is it's not top priority church is our top priority. And for a lot of us, even to me, that makes us feel uncomfortable. It's like, no, isn't it just, aren't I going to report to God by myself and just about my life? No. It's clear in Revelations, God addresses people by their church. How has that church done? How is the church doing? So it may be the case that you are on fire for the Lord. But it also may be the case the church is burning down. And in that case, you have failed as a disciple of Christ. Because it does not matter how well you are doing individually. It matters how the group, how the church is doing. So if that is the goal, then the discipline begins to make a little bit more sense. So, when do you get engage in church discipline? And when do you begin to pursue the peace and purity of the church? When does this occur? Well, we see the first step in verse 15. It says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. That's the first verse. That is from the NIV. If you have an ESV version, this is how it reads. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. You see the slight difference? It's actually a, quite a big difference. Because one says, if you see a brother or sister sinning, you approach them. The other version says, if they sin against you personally, then you go approach them. So which version is right? If you're like me, you're rooting for the ESV, okay? 
I don't want to butt into other people's business. As long if I'm offended, then I will pursue them. But as long as I'm not offended, I'm good. So we go to the Greek. What does the Greek say? Please let ESV be right. But it gets complicated in the Greek. If you read the Greek manuscripts, you will see that the preposition against you is in brackets because they are unsure if it belongs there. Because some manuscripts don't have the preposition and other manuscripts have the preposition. So the Greek does not help us at this point. Whew. Stakes are high. So what must we do? We need to go to the context. And the context will help us a little bit, but it's not going to help us a lot. Why? Because both narratives that come after this text and before this text point in two different directions, somewhat. So everyone usually connects verses 15 to 20 with the verses that come after, verses 21 and following, the Peter verse. Peter goes up to Jesus and says, how often do I forgive a brother who sins against me? Seven times? And Jesus says, truly I say to you, 77 times. Okay, verses 10 through 15 is obviously talking about personal sin offense that occurred to you. But what if you connect verses 10 through 15 to the verses above it? I mean, sorry, verses 15 through 20, the verses above it, 10 through 14. And what are the verses you find in 10 through 14? The narrative of God as shepherd leaving the 99 to pursue the one. And how I think that we should read it is with those verses in mind first, verses 10 through 14. And verses 15 to 20 is an explanation of how the church is to pursue that one that is falling away. Now, you may not be settled, but Jeff, why do you get to choose the first verse and if we have a legitimate, uh, legitimate verses that come after. I think the kicker comes in the verse, in verse 15. There is a verb there that says, if they listen to you, you have won them over. That verb won is very important because it is not a common word used throughout scripture. And if it is used, it is really meant to talk about conversion. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, this is what it says. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. It's that same verb. So Paul is talking about how he became all things to all men so that he might convert more to Christ. 1 Peter chapter 3 talks about a wife who is married to a non-Christian husband. This is what it says. In 1 Peter 3, verse 1, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, that means if they are not a follower of Christ, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. That verb, won, is talking about conversion. Philippians 3, 8, Paul begins talking about his own conversion story. He says this, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish 
in order that I may win Christ. So that word win is talking about conversion. And so what is the parable about as God as shepherd? It is about a sheep that is on the verge of falling away from the faith. So I think with that verb, God is instructing us, how do you chase after that one person who's falling from the faith? It is explaining in verses 15 to 20 how you pursue the person in grave sin. And the gravest sin of all is falling away from God. And so I believe that verses 15 to 20, it makes more sense to pair it with verses 10 to 14. And I am going to proceed it that way as it will then have implications for our church. So the question, when do you engage in church discipline? When you see a brother or sister sinning, period. And it is a sin which you think will lead to their ultimate downfall away from the faith. That is when you must pursue them. So verse 15, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. So that is the goal. You approach this brother or sister one-on-one -on -one in hopes that you win them over. In a sense, convert them back to the body of Christ. Now, how do you do this? That verb actually instructs us how we ought to convert this brother or sister back into the faith. We are to do it with gentleness. Now, oftentimes how church discipline is enacted is some person is offended and they're so angry, they approach this brother and sister and all they want to do is show them how wrong they are. But the Bible is clear that is not how you pursue church discipline. How do you pursue it? 1 Corinthians 9, 19, I'm going to read this verse again. It gives us a clue on how we are to approach church discipline. It says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. At the very least, who's ever approaching that brother and sister must become a servant. They must understand what that brother and sister is going through. They need to understand them completely. They need to completely know what that person is going through. That is what that verse is saying. You cannot just go in there with guns ablazing and just show, try to prove that you are right and that they are wrong. It's saying that that is not the case. You are to be a servant. In 1 Peter 3, we also see that verb used. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even some do not obey the word, that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. That means you approach this person who is sinning with great humility. You, there is a posture of humility that is needed as you pursue church discipline. You come ready to help. You come ready to engage. And you come ready to listen to their story. Brothers and sisters, often those who leave the faith leave for many 
complex reasons. It's never just one thing. There are, every human is complex. It is an accumulation of things that makes them fall away from the Lord. And it is your job, it is our job to understand those complexities before making any judgment. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, as Paul talks about church disciplines, he says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That is the goal of every church discipline process at every step of the way. So as you pursue this person one-on-one, the goal is to hear them and then hopefully have them repent of their sins. It's not just to listen. It's also to have the goal of having them repent of their sins and turning back to the Lord. But what if this person doesn't listen? What if this person says, that is not a sin? What I'm doing, not a sin. I think you are crazy. What do you do? You don't just say, well, I did my best. I pursued that person. They just don't want to listen. They're stubborn. I'm going to leave it alone. No, what you are to do, the next step is that you are to grab two or three more people, tell them about the situation, bring them over to this person and talk to them. And if this person says, wow, I didn't realize this was actually a sin, I'm so sorry, I'll repent to the Lord. The process is over, okay? The process ends when the person repents. There's no need to go through all the way to the end. All you are really looking for is that person to say sorry, not to you, but to God for sinning against God and his church. But what happens if you bring two or three more people and that person says, no, all three of you are crazy. I'm right. Then you need to tell it to the church. What does it mean to tell it to the church? It means you post this person's picture on Facebook. No, I'm just kidding. What does it mean to tell it to the church? If you've approached them two to three times, are you supposed to announce it here during announcement time? Am I supposed to talk about it on the pulpit? No. What we as Presbyterians have understood this uh, to mean is that you tell it to the elders of the church. And not just one elder, it is to the whole session. You tell it to them and then they will take care of it. So potentially at this point, we have about six to seven people approaching this person in gentleness, in humility, in a servant-like fashion, telling this person to repent. And mind you, all six or seven people have to agree that it's a sin. Why there's certain stages is one person may bring a grievance, and as he brings two or three more people, the two or three more people say, are you kidding? That's not a sin. I think you're overreacting. Process over. But at this point, six to seven people have agreed that this is a sin, that this person needs to repent. And what happens when this person does not repent? It says in verse 18, if they refuse to listen even to the church, means to the elders of the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. 
This is the final step, excommunication. Excommunication. Now, some people think about this. They say, whoa, that's a lot of power to give to the elders. I don't think they should have those rights. And, and there's no formal word like excommunication in those verses. Pastor Jeffrey, I think you're just trying to give yourself too much power. But fortunately, or unfortunately, however you see it, there are verses 18, 19, and 20. And those are the verses we feel give the authority to the session to excommunicate this person. Let me read it for you, verse 18. It says, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What does that mean? And that verse in itself doesn't make any sense, and it doesn't seem to give to this notion of excommunication. But if you've been reading the book of Matthew, you would know that this verse was recited two chapters earlier. And what does it say in Matthew chapter 16? And how is this verse used? Let me read it for you. This is verse 18, chapter 16. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Here it is. The authority Jesus gives to Peter are the keys of the kingdom. At the very least, what this means is that the church has the power to bring people into the kingdom of God, and they also have the power to make them leave as well. Now, most people don't have the problem with baptism, right? Everyone loves baptizing. Yeah, elders, church, they definitely should have that power. They should definitely have the cute white dress with the baby in it. You should definitely baptize them and finally formalize that they have entered into the kingdom of heaven. You can do that. But everyone has a problem when we say, well, you have to leave. But Peter gets the power to do both. And that power is then transferred to the church, and they have the power to do both. Jesus is quick to emphasize again, truly I tell you that if you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. Jesus says, this action I give you authority to do. This is done in my name, and I will do it. And we should not take these things lightly. Jesus has made his church an integral part of salvation. And so the elders do not take this lightly, these steps. And neither should you. As you understand, these whole verses are just not about the responsibility of church officers. It's actually the responsibility of every person who considers themselves a disciple of Jesus Christ. So the whole church engages in this process. And the whole church has to know what is going on. So what happens when this person is excommunicated? Well, Jesus tells us, 
They need to be treated like a pagan or a tax collector. Now, how do we treat pagans and tax collectors? Churches have abused this phrase, and they've treated people horribly. They've shunned them. They no longer talk to them. They no longer um, invite them over to their homes. They, they take them off everything. But that's not how we treat tax collectors and pagans. So how do we treat them? Well, we have to take Jesus' lead. And how does Jesus treat pagan and tax collectors? Well, he treats them well. As we see in the book of Matthew, Matthew, as he's writing this, must be in tears. Because who is Matthew? A tax collector. And here we begin to understand Matthew's story. As it's talked about in the book of Matthew, when we see Matthew's own conversion story. Here in verse 9, I believe it's chapter 6, it says, As Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Once a person is excommunicated, what are we to do? We take them out to dinner. We invite them back over to our homes. We are not to shun them or disgrace them or do any such thing. What we are to do is just make clear that they have no longer the promises of Christ guaranteed to them. That is damning enough. They don't need to hear it from us or they don't need for us to show it. And Jesus doesn't want us to show it because what does he ultimately want from this person? To come back to church. And that will only be done by through our gracious nature. That is church discipline. Now for some of you, you may be still thinking, but why do we have to do that in the first place? Can't we just let them stay in our church? Why do we have to formally declare it? Well, we have to begin thinking like Pastor David's sermon last week, as a body. Remember, the goal is not our own holiness. The goal for every disciple is the church's holiness. And if we address a sin and it does not go away, it will become infectious. It will become infectious. Paul is clear in Galatians and in Corinthians that a sin unchecked or unmitigated will spread throughout the church and it will take the church down. And if you just think about your own body, what do you need to do? Think of your own body as you think of this church. You treat your illnesses with care, right? Anytime you have a cold, what do you do? You take rest. You do it gently. You do it softly. Now what if something is growing on, say, your pinky? You treat it nicely. You don't take a hammer and hammer it away, right? You put medicine on it, medicine on it, and you care for it. But what happens if it doesn't go away and it keeps growing and it spreads? You need to cut it off. Now, that's the last resort, but at a certain point, you can't let it grow any further. This is the power of sin. It spreads. And we need to take sin seriously as a body of Christ. And that is why Jesus has enacted this process for us. 
Ultimately, church discipline doesn't have to be an altogether bad thing. I'm convinced that as we talk about it more, we will begin to see the goals of the church more. We will begin to think more in unison as in body. And we'll begin to see that sin is not something to be contemned and hated, but it's something that we go to right away to help that brother or sister be restored. If we believe Pastor David's sermon last week, every single person is important. Every single body part is important. We need every single part in order to function well and to be healthy. But there will come a time when we do have to part ways. But the miracle of Jesus is this. Who is ever cut off is not permanently cut off. There is hope. And Jesus gives us hope that once again this person will be restored back into our family. Brothers and sisters, what are we supposed to take away from this? Well, this is something for the elders as well. We will most likely begin trying to think about church discipline more seriously. The reason you guys might not think about it seriously is maybe because we don't think about it seriously. Now, that's not to say we're going to start excommunicating people next week. Um, but it is to say that we are going to go towards that direction. And that we should not be surprised if we are told that an excommunication process is occurring. We should give praise to God because people care about each other. That is where we need to be at when we talk about church discipline. We need to see the goal more than just the discipline. We need to understand why everything is happening so ultimately that as we are followers of Christ, that this body will be a church that Jesus will love and that Jesus will cherish forever to eternity. That is the goal. And would you pray with me? Father, we come before you. Lord, this is all, always a difficult topic, but a glorious topic. For it is something that you desire from all your churches, not just ACC. Lord, it is the body that needs to be healthy, and by your grace, you have made us participants in this process. Give us the courage to do so. But more importantly, give us the love to do so. Help us to be so involved in each other's lives. Help us to be so united that when one person is in sin and is in pain, that we would go and approach them to, in hopes that they may be restored. It is a tall calling you have called upon us. But, Father, we hope that we will be able to do it because we know in the long run it will be good for our own individual souls. But more important, importantly, it will be good for the soul of our church. We thank you, God. Give us courage. Give us love. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.